Taking Up Space is proudly supported by Cold Comfort, the ice cream of champions. Handcrafted with local, organic, fair trade, and recyclable ingredients right in the heart of Victoria. Vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, and sugar-free options are available. Stop by the small, independent ice cream company with a conscience. Visit them online at www.coldcomfort.ca. You're listening to Taking Up Space, a program highlighting conversations on feminism from an intersectional lens. And I'm your host, Anne Bernice Thomas. So this episode features conversations on disability and neurodiversity. Having talks like this can be really difficult because not only is the spectrum of abilities so diverse, but quite often disabilities are invisible to those who aren't experiencing them. This panel brings together people of all different abilities um, to talk about what it's like to live in a world that caters to those who are able-bodied and neurotypical. All right, let's get started. Thank you all for joining us. For this episode, our panel consists of Monica Ogden, Elaine LaBerge, and Joanne Neubauer. Could you introduce yourselves? Sure, I'm Joanne Neubauer. I am a woman with a disability. I've had this disability for most of my life, let's just say. <laughs> and I'm the president of the Action Committee of People with Disabilities in the community. So we serve a cross-section of people with issues that usually occur and create barriers for people that, so that they're unable to participate fully in community. So we try to dissolve those barriers as much as we can, and if we ever get a chance, get them removed. <laughs> I will just say that because I've been disabled all my life virtually, that from ever since I can remember, there were all kinds of obstacles put in my way to participate, to go to school, to fly on an airplane, to go to church if I wanted to, to be uh, have fun with my friends in the community, uh, there were challenges, and I was fortunate in many ways. I grew up in a large family. There were uh, five of us children and uh, a small community, so we all kind of knew each other and, and cared about what happened to each other. So we had, I think, lots of help. I felt like, I thought, felt like I had lots of support. Doesn't mean that there weren't some big challenges. So I've grown up with it, and I learned from my mother, really, how to advocate for myself. And I learned also from my father how to just advocate, period, when you are just, just stand up for your rights, when you believe they're being trodden on. It was a good skill I learned early because I had to be able to use it all my life and still to this day. So in that way, I'm going to be involved in this for as long as I can think straight and talk well or communicate properly, put it that way, to get my message across. At one point, I, w I call myself a pessimistic idealist because at one point I used to think there could come a day where I can just be one of the community like everybody else and it doesn't matter that I'm living in a wheelchair, etc., but uh, no, every time there are changes in government, there are changes in uh, bureaucratic personnel, 
um, even your grocery store sometimes, you know, you find stuff happening that you thought you'd already settled years ago and boom, there it is again. So I have to always be ready to fight the battle. I'm Monica Ogden. Uh, I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a Filipina activist, YouTuber, and theater artist. My work is primarily theater work uh, with Nickel Pumpernickel, which is my experimental duo in town. Uh, emphasis on experimental, very weird stuff. Um, and I work with Paper Street Theater as well. And all my work is on unceded territory of the Lekwungen and Masanich peoples. And I come from a strong Filipina women, my mom and my Lilang, which is a uh, in Tagalog, that's grandma, specifically Ilocano, uh, and they are present in all of the work that I do, but uh, as a theater artist, I strive to make work that is accessible and social justice driven, which is why I'm here to learn from everyone here. I speak a little bit more to mental health and uh, I'm kind of newer to communities of disability and am very humbled by all of the work of disability activists and kind of coming from this from my perspective of more chronic pain and mental health that I deal with and chronic illness. So in my activist work and in my theater work, I'm a person with PTSD and that it really doesn't work currently. A lot of theater is not fully accessible in many different ways, but the fact that we have to have conversations around content warnings and whether artists want to give people content warnings because apparently it's their job to figure out if someone can view their art or not. Just kind of the conversations that are happening currently in, I don't know, Western Canadian mainstream white theater is uh, always kind of the, the oppressor doing the talking and the marginalized kind of trying to find voice in that. But uh, I recently did a show called Monica vs. the Internet, which was directed by Ambernice Thomas. And uh, we explored how PTSD intersects with racism, sexism, and disability, and how that all kind of exacerbates itself. I won't go much into that show, but uh, that's kind of the way that I am bridging all of these things together and trying to put it out there in, a, in the community in, in a way that is well, yes, accessible, but uh, there are so many barriers in theater that none of the work I've ever done has been completely accessible. So that is a, that's a bit of a learning curve for, for this community specifically in where I work in uh, Victoria. Thank you. My name's Elaine Leberge. I am a sociology graduate student. Uh, for my master's, I looked at how growing up in systemic childhood poverty or persistent childhood poverty shapes undergraduate students' experiences. So I spent a year with participants trying to understand their narratives and stories and then looking at it from a structural perspective. For my PhD, I've got a shift in my focus and I'm going to be looking at grassroots movements to widen access to and participation in higher education for poverty class students. And in this context, I am white. Uh, my first language is English. My citizenship is never questioned. My religious beliefs are not visible. And I come from generational poverty. So that's how this sort of all got started. I'm going to speak to depression and sort of frame it in terms of social class because growing up in generational poverty, um, I've always struggled with depression. I don't remember when I didn't, and I remember those early experiences as a child. But because of the stressful life 
that we lived to simply just try to survive adds this this element of uh, living this pressure cooker life and you learn to um, well I learned to silence myself and be very invisible which became a safety mechanism and as I progressed through life and I went into the business world uh, where it was mostly males I was working with I learned to silence this even more so when abuse was coming my way and injustice my way I learned to hold my breath and not talk and so when I am in these really stressful situations for example when I'm around abusive people in power this exasperates things for me because it's just not a sustainable way to be and I'll specifically just address this in terms of university and you know some of what my participants shared with me and and what I shared with them and how deeply poverty can really shape your experiences in higher education and the dominant narratives are well just suck it up assimilate the middle class culture and this is what a top student looks like so the idea that there's all of a sudden this mental illness epidemic these ideas and I'm not suggesting causation between social class and poverty and and any of these kind of things but the stress just I'm seeing of this neoliberal university which just means universities that look like businesses and operate like business it's added this whole new element of really problematic stress that everybody's just running 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 fighting for resources publisher parish takes on a whole new meaning and I know that one of the things that's making depression worse for me is as an undergrad I was absolutely invisible pretty much invisible but as a grad student now I've become much more visible and with my PhD because I'm becoming very active in addressing systemic and structural problems now I'm even more and more visible so I find that there's days that I just am too terrified to leave my apartment. The anxiety of having to come to this campus can be really, really problematic. It's the idea of just, it's in the past, get over it. As people will say about PTSD, some people, or just go take these pills and the side effects will be, is, is really problematic. And, and as, as a woman, I'm always worried about if I'm angry, and I'm standing alone with that anger, how am I being storied? Or if I'm part of a collective and angry, or if I'm just straight up depressed, and I still know, because of my generation, I'm older, is that there's the shame and stigma surrounding this. So I've got lots of real tensions with that. And just having this conversation now, it's going to be out there. Mm -hmm. And there can be consequences and risks, but here we are having the conversation. And I appreciate when you talk about the risk you take to identify as a person with a disability, or I'd say I call it a disabling condition because that's the thing that creates a barrier for you. Other than that, you're fine functioning, but you have these moments where you have a disabling condition, and it's quite severe by the sounds of things. So. To come out and tell people about that is extremely risky. I've talked to many people in the disabled community who do not wish to expose themselves because of the repercussions that when they dared to try once, they felt the effects and said, that's it, it's not worth it. Yeah. Yeah, so I really understand that. Yeah. And I applaud you. 
Well, you know, in university, and thank you for that, in university, because this is my area of research, not uh, mental health, but how universities perpetuate privilege and, and trying to widen access to yeah. marginalized populations because poverty rates are going through the roof in this country for the most marginalized populations. But it's it's just not only um, feels dangerous and, and risky, but it's also now I can be storied as a student who who shouldn't be here because I'm missing some special genetic something that, because this is what a student looks like. Yeah. Fake yeah. it till you make it, suck it up, and yeah. Awesome, thank you. This podcast is called Taking Up Space. So in regards to taking up space with a disability or as people with disabilities, is it difficult to make space for yourself and others and why is it important to make space for yourself and others who have disabilities? At this point in my life, I'm relearning how to take up space in my current body, like how I'm functioning now versus how I functioned like five years ago, how much has changed in that time, how my own mental health has changed and my body has changed and just how much I didn't know like a really long time ago about what was going on being undiagnosed for so long, that kind of thing. So I was just thinking about like, oh, I don't even know how I take up space because I don't know if I do yet. And really interesting, Joanne, what you were talking about of like people not wanting to, to out themselves and, and take up any kind of space because of the repercussions. Like there's so many repercussions if you talk about any of the things we're talking about right now. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really it's really challenging, but it's also like a really good experience to feel that challenge and to be mindful about how much space you're taking up. I mean, this conversation is, is huge in like feminist circles because of how much, for instance, white feminism takes up uh, space, which is, uh, don't get me into that. <laughs> uh, I will just like be so angry. Um, but yeah, just having a better understanding of how much I can take up space and like when it's okay not to and just be cool with being not okay or being not okay and away from people. Yeah, I'm I'm think I'm relearning a lot, I think, right now. I love the phrase because each of us here we are in fact taking up space. And I feel we need to be proud of that. It's not something to shrink and say, oh, I wish I wasn't here. You are here. So stand up and stand up tall and be counted. Um, because I've always thought through, it's one of the things that gave me strength. Not that particular word, but just saying, I'm here. And uh, when you say that it's healthcare for the whole family, I'm part of that family. When you say that you want to have an, a community that's accessible for everyone, guess what? That means me too. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to be involved in that. I'm going to let you know I'm part of that family. I'm part of that community. And you're not going to try and exclude me because I'm not someone who goes away quietly and says, oh, well, I get some days, yes, some days I haven't got the strength and fortitude to, to face the battles. But I had a friend once who said that, she has since passed away, but she said that just taking the bus to go downtown, 
once a week for her took all the courage she could muster because it wasn't just, was there going to be a step? She was in a wheelchair. Was there going to be a step? Was there going to be a door she couldn't get through? Was there, you know, what those obvious things are? But it would be a look. It would be a positioning of the body. It would be, there were so many things that she articulated as affecting her psyche that I, I was really appreciated her verbalizing of that because through that experience and communication from her, I realized, yeah, it really does have a huge impact. And to the point where some days it's like, no, I don't feel like really being noticed. Now, the odd thing about me is that I can't help it. <laughs> Everywhere I go, I'm noticed because I take up quite a bit of space. And even when I want to sneak in quietly to a group session, can't do it. Yeah. So, you know, and, and I'm happy that everybody, you know, it's what in the circles that I'm involved in, we're all trying to practice this inclusion and everything. You know, so when I come into the room, oh, now all the chairs are moving and people are moving. It's like, no, 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 I just wanted to be that fly on the wall right now. <laughs> but anyway, here we are. Okay, so, yep, I'm going to take up my space there in the circle, you know. So there's moments where I feel like I'm entering in one way, and then once I'm there, I, I realize I don't have to stay that way, and I can come and go in and out of being quiet and in and out of, you know, saying something as I, as I wish. As an undergrad, most of the classes I took, um, I didn't take up space other than the physical sitting in a desk. So when comments would happen in classes that were very distressing to me, I never spoke up, but I never said anything. And I think I had to be taught about taking up space not in a way that it's storied as, oh, here's this chick who's, you know, oh, she's one of those feminists, all those narratives that, that we've, we've all heard. But it was a participant in my research who taught me how to take up space because she took up space. She didn't even have a choice because she's this magnificent warrior. But when I defended my master's thesis, uh, a committee member made me take off my shoes and socks and plant my feet, bare feet on the ground. And every time a leg would lift, she would gently touch it to tell me to own this, own this research, own my education, own this moment. And it was incredibly powerful. I mean, I still struggle with taking up space and how does my mental health, how does it impact my life, my work? shape the way I approach school and think about things mm. but I'm I'm a lot more comfortable I think with taking up space and in order to do social justice work I don't know how I could be any other way thank you all right so we're up on our first break and after that we will continue into this conversation on disability and neurodivergence Coming up, CPV's production team brings you an in-depth definition of the word disability. That's in a moment. Stay with us. On a philosophical level, definitions allow us to be precise when we grapple with concepts that are abstract in nature. That is the beauty of language. Appointed labels can result in emotional turmoil, 
But when we take ownership of the language we use, we can control how we perceive ourselves and how society perceives who we are. That is why precision and consent are so important when we choose to use words such as person with a disability or disabled person. The use of person with a disability is an example of people-first language, in which the person is identified first and the impairment this person experiences is identified second. For many, it is a respectful use of language. However, it has been rejected by those who think that people-first language is based on the assumption that impairments are something inherently negative that you would not want to be associated with in the first place. Hence, disabled person is an example of identity-first language and used to emphasize that a person is disabled only so long as society remains inaccessible for them and not because of their impairments. In the latter use of language, someone is not a person with a disability, but rather a person who has been disabled by society's current construct of disability and its inaptitude at including all people. Now, we are using many words here without explanation, so let's take a step back. What is disability, what are impairments, and what is accessibility? According to the US Department of Health and Human Services, an impairment is an absence of or significant difference in a person's body structure or function or mental functioning. In today's current expression of society, impairments make it more difficult to do certain activities and interact with the world. This is because the world we live in has been constructed in such a way that it is not readily accessible for people with impairments. For instance, a building designed and constructed without a ramp is inaccessible to someone who requires a wheelchair. Thus, accessible social spaces and services are modified or designed to enable all people to use them without undue difficulty. Defining the concept of disability is challenging when one acknowledges the existence of many philosophical viewpoints on the matter. In what is called the social model, disability is understood as separate from impairments. It is something imposed on top of impairments by the way people are unnecessarily isolated and excluded from full participation in an inaccessible society. If using the example mentioned earlier, requiring a wheelchair might be an impairment, but not being able to enter the building is a socially imposed disability. But in what is called the radical model, impairment and disability are not separated. Rather, disability is entirely understood as a social construct that has changed meaning over time as power structures evolved. It is defined simply as those who are externally identified as disabled and those who self-identify as disabled. To wrap up, it is important to remember that disability intersects with other experiences and identities. Disabled people who are white, male, cis, and or straight will move through the world very differently from people of color, women, poor and working class people, trans people, and queer or LGBTQ2 people. Break free from boring ice cream with Cold Comfort. Cold Comfort is a small, independent ice cream company right here in Victoria, with over 400 different handcrafted ice cream flavors inspired by everything from local fruit to local beer. Curiously flavored and locally made, they've been doing whatever the hell they feel like since 2010. Head on down and treat your taste buds today. Check them out 
at www.coldcomfort.ca. Welcome back to Taking Up Space. I'm your host, Anne Bernice Thomas. This episode features conversations on disability, mental health, and neurodivergence. I'm joined by Monica Ogden, Elaine LaBerge, and Joanne Neubauer. Um, so in your opinion, what would an ideal and accessible intersectional feminist space or community be like? How can intersectional feminism or feminism just be more accessible to disabled and neurodivergent people? Yeah, I think there's so many things to make various spaces accessible. Um, I have uh, endometriosis uh, as well, which is uh, a condition in which uterine lining, uh, if you have a uterus, which I do, um, grows in other parts of your body and then sheds uh, in a very painful manner. And I feel like none of the people in my spheres know what that is. Or I'll, I'll do the shorthand of like, oh yeah, just endo flaring up. And people will be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Excuse me, what's that? And I'm like, oh, it's just this thing where the uterine line, blah, blah, blah. Um, so like, A, people don't really know. Oh, like if you're not actively seeking to get yourself out there and listen to people or like listen to podcasts like this or, or put yourself in a position where you are the person that doesn't know things then you're not going to make an accessible space because you don't know you're not listening to people that are maybe not as privileged as yourself so like the people in my life i try and take that little step of saying well this is what this condition is like this is how it affects people um, this is why i miss so much work and why i make a significantly less money than you do because i can't work the same way that you do things like that that like kind of like you were saying joanne like people just take for granted like the things that like oh i wouldn't i wouldn't think about that because mm -hmm. i don't have to think about that i think yeah, just the way to identify barriers is to talk about barriers. And there's always going to be more barriers. So there's never going to be a point at which it's like, great, everything's fixed. Um, it's just more that like, oh, let's keep fixing. Keep fixing, keep trying to remove all of the systemic things that we can. And I would say always centering um, women of color with disabilities as well. I think that's the way that spaces become more accessible is listening to people who should be centered. Well, one of the things I, I struggle with, and it's, it's sort of a flippant sort of comment I make uh, frequently, there's the chess club and there's the, I don't know, whatever, all these different clubs, but there's no poverty class club. Students and professors aren't going to put their hand up and go, hey, I come from poverty. And this is why when I look at this, this intersectional lens is absolutely so critical because the last thing that we need to do is to continue to just reduce people to the single story that they're all the same, they all experience everything the same. And there's this wonderful theorist who's really hard to understand, Maria Lagonis, who talks about world traveling and loving perception. And she puts world traveling in, in quotes. It took me three years to realize she didn't mean literally, <laughs> about about how that we can world travel to each other's worlds, as, as you're talking mm -hmm. about, so that we can see from outside of our own sphere and what where our experiences intersect and where they're also different. And what, for me, is so key 
about intersectionality is that if you pull one of those intersections out, you're missing something huge and it falls apart. And so with mental health, I have concerns the way that it's storied, dominant narratives of snowflakes we were talking about and it's just in the past and just get over it. You know, here's some brochures, just take some pills as if we all experience mental health disabilities all the same way. This is hugely, hugely problematic. And so if we're going to have, I feel that these these spaces, communities, and I know how powerful community is because I had a community for the first time in my life and it was a research community at the University of Alberta and not having community now has been very, very difficult and has made my depression far worse mm. because it was also my safe place sure. where we could explore because they're all narrative inquirers and nobody goes, I have all the answers and your writing mm-hmm. sucks or anything like that. They're all relational people. So I, I, I look at these opportunities for activism and community as, as a way to be able to world travel and learn, to really, really learn. And I mean, her theories, Lagonis's theory is one thing, trying to live it is a little trickier. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she talks about arrogant versus loving perception, how she arrogantly perceived her mother because her mother was a maid. And so I think that, you know, and, and as a student who's from the prairies, not from here, and as an introvert, and <laughs> this has been really hard to make connections and to feel safe that I can, who can I even talk to beyond a doctor who just maybe wants to give me some pills to talk about this and where I know that I'm not going to be punished for it. I mean, I've had a couple big uh, cries here since I've gotten here. I'm mm-hmm. not sure how I'm storied, you know? But as I'm taking up space, I'm becoming storied in ways I don't know, and we'll see. But to be able to be in these spaces with others and not carry the weight of the shame and stigma would be a really good thing. Yeah, shame and stigma is a pretty big issue, actually, that hasn't come up. And the one about um, autonomy for women, too, has, hasn't come up. I don't. And those are big issues, uh, especially for women. It's like, you know, if you can just be all cute and, oh, okay, you know, then you're going to have a lot more things come your way. I wouldn't believe how many people told me. Joanne, you get a lot more bees with honey, you know. It's like, whatever. Yeah, I haven't been getting any honey. That hasn't been working. (laughs) So, um, you know, it's just all these things that kind of negate, in a way, who you are. That people don't mean to. They just don't realize what, what they're actually saying. And then that same person often who's told me, you know, honey with for bees was later said great you were here and good thing you spoke up and you know it's like okay today I didn't need to you know try to attract those bees but thankfully I just will continue to be true to myself and uh, as hard as that is and as lonely as that is sometimes I just think that's what I the only course of action that I can take and in autonomy it's a big issue because it's also important for men with disabilities, but since more uh, there's more impact on women with disabilities who are in relationships, autonomy becomes extremely huge, especially autonomy in your family, yeah, autonomy in a partnership, 
the income issue is old, you know, all these other things that really need to be talked about still. I think that to say how can we make things accessible can be keep trying. And I also like to say that when people plan group sessions, please get somebody in a wheelchair who's not necessarily of Rick Hansen's well-being, but who's more disabled, who might need to have a table, who might need access to the microphone, who might need to not sit at the back or on the side of the room, things like that. And just to have, see if you can find somebody in your community to say, hey, I'm planning this meeting. How about if you come along and we'll go through it and you tell me, you know, if there's things we could do that would be better more effective where you feel like you can be a part without making a big scene of it all you know we don't want to make a scene necessarily when we go somewhere we just want to be there and uh, that's what I hope people continue to try to do and and uh, so far people who I've met you know are of that thought process and don't ask people to erase their identity to assimilate this mm-hmm. culture of privilege, which is, I find, I, I expend a lot of energy pushing up against that, so I don't become complicit in doing that. And it, it's, it's a lot of work, and it just, it's exhausting, and it makes me feel horrible. And then I don't eat properly, and then I'm not sleeping properly, because there is such a danger in it. And this has to be, my education and research has to be to create some difference. One of the things that I often talk about, because somebody talked about it with me when I was really young, was sometimes we think people think of us in a certain way. Sometimes we're right about that, but sometimes we're very wrong about that. And to and to presume that we're right is probably our biggest mistake because that's what stops us, thinking that somebody thinks we're like this when we're not. And if we just, um, that's why I say that taking up space, stand tall, you know, own your space. Because you'll be surprised, as I've learned over the years, how many people will say, glad you showed up, Joanne. You know, so yeah. that's the kind of thing as I was like worried, didn't want to, was unsure, la, la, la. And there I was, and people were happy I did it, so... All the, all the stories I thought people had about me were not correct. I was going to say that uh, the, the power of self-representation can be really, really beautiful. Um, like, no one is ever really going to represent your story the way that you want them to. No one's mm-hmm. going to, for mm-hmm. me, no one's going to write me a play that's going to be my that's experience. Right. No one's going to do that for me. So um, the fact that I am able and have enough privilege to be able to put out my story and hopefully give space to other people to tell their story is, is hugely important to me in an artistic context. And my solo show that I made with Anne Bernice Thomas, it wasn't a show that anyone else would make in the community. It's never, it has my name in it. It's, it's not something that, uh, anyone would have made for me. There's no roles out there for me. There's no roles for people that look exactly like me. So I have to do and 
create what I want to see in the world if I'm able to. There are a lot of times where I'm not able to and I have to take a step back and and it's I don't think there's no pressure on me to do so but if if that's what I want to do and I want to represent myself the way that I see myself as a bad but superhero which I do think I am <laughs> then I'm gonna make that you know so yeah, I just really wanted to echo what you were both saying about right. re representing and, and how representing is really powerful. Cool. Yeah, I totally agree. All right, let's take a little break and we'll keep the conversation rolling when we come back. Up next, CPP's production team has put together a list of resources that may be handy for those who struggle with their mental health. That's next, stay tuned. Do you know where to turn to for support? Vancouver Island is home to a wide array of mental health services and education centers. You or someone you know is currently living with a mental health disorder, a mood disorder, or anxiety, but there are locations across the island that are available to give people the care they need and the tools they need to better manage their health. One such resource is the Vancouver Island Housing Society, available to all residents of Vancouver Island, the mainland communities between Powell River and Rivers Inlet, and the Georgia Strait. They offer workshops for crisis and suicide intervention, communication in the workplace, compassion and boundary setting, and more. They are dedicated to bringing awareness to suicide and compassion to those living with crisis. Many people who attempt suicide do it because they feel like their life is worthless or that they are a drain on the people around them. If you are feeling this way or see signs of someone who might be considering it, please don't hesitate to reach out to them and have them contact the Suicide Prevention Hotline to speak to a trained counsellor about what they are going through. The hotline is available 24 hours a day at 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-784-2433 offered through the Vancouver Island Crisis Line Network. They also provide an online crisis chat at www.vicrisis.ca or a crisis text service at 250-800-3806, both offered from 6pm to 10pm, seven days a week. Esquimalt Neighborhood House Society is another fantastic resource for mental health support offering the community counseling for individuals, couples, youth, and children. Nothing is scarier than becoming a new parent and feeling unprepared. They provide much-needed support to expecting mothers with limited resources, living in isolation, or health issues in their Best Babies prenatal program. But what about the people who have already had a child and find themselves in a tight spot? They also provide programs to help you attain bus tickets, food vouchers, information, and referrals to other resources, and access to the clothing cupboard and emergency food. It can be difficult to ask for help in our later years, especially when you've lived an independent and self-sufficient life. Luckily, senior citizens, 65 years and older living in Esquimalt, have available services such as light housekeeping, grocery shopping, transportation, light home repair, and they are constantly finding new ways to further help regardless of your income status. Esquimalt Neighborhood House is located at 511 Constance Avenue, or can be reached by phone at 250-385-2635, and further information is on their website at www.enh.bc.ca.
everyone has low days, but when those days become weeks or months, it gets hard to believe anyone would really understand. But Citizens Counseling Center provides individuals, couples, and group counseling to adults living in Greater Victoria, with counseling available days, evenings, and weekends. Their well-trained counselors can provide you with support for stress and anxiety, self-esteem or assertiveness issues, situational depression, needing conflict resolution. Have you been fired? Are you getting divorced or messy breakup? Maybe your grandparent just passed away. Change of status or roles can be draining and earth-shattering for some people, but the Citizens Counseling Centre is well-equipped to help you learn to manage these tough times and not let it hold you back. They can be contacted by phone Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. to set up a session or to get more information. If you are worried about costs and who isn't these days, they use a sliding scale rate for their counseling sessions that is very reasonable. Their website, www.citizenscounseling.com, has even more information regarding what is available and the details of their rates. Are you dealing with substance abuse? Is your partner suffering and they aren't sure what the cause is? One of the first places to go if you or someone you love is in need of extensive care is Centralized Access and Rapid Engagement Service, or CARES. They are a great first step to accessing support for mental health and substance abuse problems. Located at 1119 Pembroke, their team of social workers, nurses, and psychiatric professionals will be able to refer you to all the appropriate channels. For more information, call 250-519-3485 or visit www.viha.ca. Through the CARES program or by referral from a family physician, you can access the Victoria Mental Health Centre, conveniently located at 2328 Trent Street. The Victoria Mental Health Centre gives residents access to short or long-term psychiatric care, services for schizophrenia, mood disorders, anxiety, and early psychosis intervention. All of the services provided are free of charge. If you would like to contact someone to learn more, they can be reached at 250-370-8175 or through the viha.ca website for more information. Poor mental health can affect anyone, including those with developmental disabilities. Through Community Living British Columbia, or CLBC, folks in BC who are living with a developmental disability can access assistance with finding housing options that encourage independence, family support, employment opportunities, and help with social and life skills. CommunityLivingBC.ca has much more information, or you can call them toll-free at one 877 6602522 If life has taken a turn and you find yourself without a home, there are many fantastic resources available. The Kool-Aid Society provides dental and health care and assistance to people living with mental illness. With housing costs up and a tight job market, anyone could end up in need of assisted housing. They are trying to provide a safe living space and employment assistance to help you get back on solid ground. They have more information on their website, kool-aid.org. If you don't have access to a computer, libraries around the city provide free access to the internet. You can also call at 250-383-1977 for more information on how they can help you. No one should feel alone or like they have nowhere to turn to for help. 
There are many free or affordable services available all over Vancouver Island for anyone living with mental health problems and or disabilities. They are always waiting to give support or listen. You just have to take the first step. Welcome back to Taking Up Space. I'm your host, Anne Bernice Thomas. In this episode, our conversation revolves around neurodivergence, mental health, and disability. Our panelists include Monica Ogden, Elaine LaBerge, and Joanne Neubauer. Um, do you have any parting words you'd like to leave our listeners with? Uh, I do actually remember something that I wrote down something. I, I don't have much to say about it, but I was just going to say that um, Annie Elaney, the, the person uh, who I was talking about before, one of those YouTubers who uh, identifies as queer, disabled, and a person of color, they have this great video on uh, the hashtag that was trending for a while on Twitter called Disability So White. And they were talking about how in mainstream movies and films and things like that, disability was often portrayed as this very white male thing. That was the only kind of disability that was ever shown. And so there was rarely any ever, uh, any women or, or people of color or queer people with disabilities. And it was just really interesting with kind of the... I don't know, all of the things that are going on, I say all of the things because it's exhausting, but just, I'm very um, active on Twitter, so those are the kinds of things that I'm always following, so uh, hashtags are a big thing in this activist sphere that I take up, so I just thought that their work on that was very interesting and bringing to light how even in our communities that are, you know, smaller kind of groups where people can go to find community there's still always that critique of okay what are we representing who isn't here who isn't at the table who's not given a voice kind of thing so i would just highly recommend her work because it's really phenomenal um i guess just want to say a little bit more about the autonomy issue because um some of it's related i guess to social economical situations uh, in terms of thinking that you're stuck with that life. But it's impacted on women, particularly women, when they're in an abusive situation, which can be their family. doesn't have to be their partner. And uh, <clears throat> because most, of, uh, most people with disabilities are still, regardless of race and color and anything, still 80% of people with disabilities are pretty much unemployed and therefore dependent on some kind of government income. And I'll challenge anybody to give me a different figure, and I hope they can give me a smaller one. So what happens then is because when you're on government income assistance, now you become part of a family unit. <laughs> Whereas before you didn't have a family, now you have a family. And so if they have income, well, guess what? That's what they look at. They look at all that income. Now, income levels are different depending on how many people in the family. So don't think of it like as if you're single, but still it's all part of the picture. And if there's earnings exemptions and you're married, for instance, or in a married relationship and your partner is earning money, that partner gets the earning exemption, not you. Even if you go and you find, out, find a little job, 
You don't get the earnings exemption. They do. Just really archaic stuff there that is supported by existing law. It, you know, and it's based in law, this stuff, this whole thought process and the process that your family has to help you first before we're going to step in and do anything else. Well, excuse me, my family helps me. My family is there when I feel like there's no one in the world that cares about me. My family has fed me for how many years? My family has, you know, taken helped me get to school, made sure that happened. Whatever it is, as small or as big it is, nobody's judgment. But to negate the fact that your family has existed and done stuff for you is totally wrong. And so, but that's how they view it. And then the thing is that, okay, so... Now, all that income now is not yours. So if you want to try and get out of it, like I've seen a few women who were in abusive relationships want to get out. They had no money. Yeah. No way to do it. And that was atrocious. That exists for men too. They It's the same. doesn't matter. Gender doesn't matter in this case. It's if you're in a partnership relationship. So if your wife is earning money, they get the earning exemption. You don't. whole thing all pertains. Also, then, you have the issue of credibility. It's amazing how much money is linked to intellectual capacity. So if you have a good income and you have a, you know, a stable job, whatever it is, okay. You know what you're doing. If you're a volunteer, which I have been all my life, people have interestingly enough given me, given the thing I do all my life as a paid job. And when I've said, no, I'm a volunteer, they're like, what? <laughs> like, whoa, nobody ever thought to ask me, but yeah. Hmm. And so certain assumptions then came along with that. Okay, you're a volunteer, so therefore blah, blah, blah. The autonomy is so connected to money. There's our individual autonomy, believing that we don't have to keep everything as it is. We can make a change. It's extremely difficult if you have no money. And it's why there's a lot of people couch surfing. They won't be able to survive the streets. They have no place to rent. They don't have a family. Oh, and incidentally, <laughs> now if you find a roommate so you maybe can share a place with, you know, two people rent a place, like in the general public, now you're a couple. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how the government just like, because, okay, today you're single and that's the way we want you to be, but now get a roommate, okay, now you're a couple and you got to prove that you're not. And just, it goes on and on. It's a huge topic. And how that whole manipulation of money continues to trap people in a social-economical level that is basically irrelevant, but uh, in terms of functioning, highly relevant. Because if you can't even, you know, go out and buy your own cigarettes and you have to ask somebody for money for cigarettes for instance because they're the breadwinner and you're not 
well, you need to quit smoking. You know, all the, all the judgment calls, yep. all the, everything that follows, just it's got a huge ripple effect. I think that it took a long time, and I'm still taking a long time to get to where I am now. It's still learning about what and what I can't do and what uh, what my voice sounds like now. I guess, in this new person that I am. But I would say that I love my anxiety. I love my depression. I love my PTSD. I love my endometriosis. I love my disabilities. They are who I am. They're a part of me. Even if I was taught not to love that, and there are challenging things associated with these things, it's not the challenge isn't because I am any of those things. The challenge is because of the ableist society. So I love who I am now. And I also love you if you're out there and you are struggling with something or you don't really know how to name things. And I mean, a lot of what we talked about is things that come from our own backgrounds and research and things like that and, and work that we do. But I love you out there. Perfect. Well said. So that concludes our conversation for this episode. Thank you so much to Monica Ogden, Elaine LaBerge, and Joanne Neubauer for coming in to speak with us today. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to Taking Up Space, rate us, leave us a comment, or review the show at www.cfubpodcast.com or wherever else you get your podcasts. Make sure to check out the description for references and resources. This program was produced by myself, Alba Clevenger, Annabelle Budd, Megan Warren, Chelsea D, and Max Collins. Our theme music is composed by Arcade Palette. This episode was created by CFUV's production team, and if you want to be a part of making amazing programs like this one, head to cfuv.ca to learn more. Taking up space wouldn't be possible without the generous support of our friends at Cold Comfort and the Community Radio Fund of Canada. We'll leave you today with some poetry by Heva Kelly. I'm Ambernice Thomas. This is Taking Up Space, and we'll catch you next time. My name is Heather Kelly. I am a disabled feminist um, interested in body politics, disability activism, and intersectional feminism. Um, I'm going to read some poems today that focus on topics that are very important to me. Um, This poem is called The Depression Cave. The light folds in on itself as it hits her window. Condensation fogs the glass. She drags her finger in a slow curved swipe twice to make the mocking shape. Her bones click and groan as she too folds, resumes the position, her body a snarl, arms coiled around the ribs, shoulders caving into the chest, knotted hands limp in her lap, yesterday's cereal milk congealing in its bowl. She sits, sucking her cooled fingertip, The dull light careens through the path cleared by her hand. The cold heart on the glass fades and glows, numbs and throbs. 
It takes her three whole days to sun the nerve to wipe the smudged shape away. Um, this poem was the first poem that I actually wrote about my disability for a workshop. Um, it's called Confessions. One, I am losing the ability to wash my face. I curse my clenched claw. Knuckle punch suds into my skin, scrape fingernails down my cheeks as my hand slips back into a fist. Two, I am watching my body deactivate, this disability racking my bones, my dexterity being defeated. I am growing a new disgust for myself as I see myself deteriorate. Three, I w when I was 12 and freshly paralyzed, half my scalp shaved bald, 177 scabbing stitches writhing across my little skull. The doctors told me this would happen. The atrophy, the dystrophy, the chronic pain, the loss of limbs as they begin to feel even more foreign to me. But they never said how much it would hurt to watch, how I would always hate one side of me. 4. In my mind, I see this egregious lurching body, that left side hanging heavy like the marrow inside the bones has cemented, like the joints are dried up, clicking loudly as the muscles rot. I listen to my spine grind itself down to a pulp while I stand shifting foot to foot in a crowd. Nobody notices. 5. The scar on the side of my head where they stitched my skull back together burns beneath my hair as I watch, smoldering with envy, fingers with ability, do all the things that I can't. 6. I wish I could unzip my skin, step out of this damaged body that refuses to listen, this body that defines my worth, this body that doesn't even work. Then maybe I could finally see who I am. 7. I beg my crippled hand, let go, let go, let go. I feel my muscles contract in protest. I feel failure all over my skin. An endless explanation. Look, I get it. I don't look disabled. I know you think I'm so lucky and it must be such a relief that people don't notice it immediately. But here I am explaining my biggest insecurity to another stranger who's now going to use me for their inspirational cripple motif or a nice reminder reminder to be thankful that they aren't disabled and no it's not flattering to hear how pretty I am as if the way I look makes up for a crippled existence cursed with inability a lifetime of chronic pain I know this is probably your first time meeting a disabled person you also find sexually attractive but you can just stop looking so shocked like a pretty white girl with a nice body can't have a fatal flaw I just don't understand why it's so hard to recognize or notice that I'm not like you, or why I'm always doing all the f***ing emotional labor to explain my crippled body to another f***ing stranger. Woman as Weapon A girl is a gun. A girl is a gutter. A girl is a splinter, too deep to pick out. A girl is a wound before cauterizing, before scabbing over, oozing and leaking and open, bloody and bludgeoned. A girl is a peach with downy skin and dark core, soft and sickly sweet, hard at the center, hard enough to break your teeth. 
A girl is an open mouth, wide and torn open in a silent O of ecstasy. A girl is a stop sign, disregarded. A girl is lips and lips and lips, dressed up for you in silk and lace, dressed down for you in skin and skin and skin. A girl is a vertigo head rush, wine that makes you sick, the tile floor that cools your burning cheeks, the charcoal that empties your gut. A girl is an atom bomb, a flower in full bloom, a piece of art you want to memorialize, to be framed in exhibits, in every museum, on every stage. A girl is a gun, a girl is a bullet, is a trigger, is a headshot. Cold Comfort is an ice cream store with a conscience. Crafted by ethically paid employees using local, organic, fair trade, and natural ingredients, Cold Comfort offers high-quality, guilt-free ice cream. Ice cream is for everyone. They make dairy-free, vegan, and sugar-free options, as well as gluten-free ice cream sandwiches. Now that's some ice cream I can get behind. Find out more at www.coldcomfort.ca.